Hi, and welcome back to Malicious Life. I'm Ren Levy. This episode is the final episode of our mini-series on China's unrestricted warfare. We had to interrupt the series due to the RSA episodes and the collaboration with Wired magazine. So here's a quick refresher. In part one, I introduced you to two Chinese military officers who redefined the role of cyber attacks and espionage in modern warfare. Their position, which influenced military thinking both in China and the U.S, is that future wars will be decided not only by armed forces, but by a combination of all possible means, both military and non-military, lethal and non-lethal. In part two, we described the Chinese espionage campaign against Nortel Networks, one of the world's largest telecommunication technology companies back in the early 2000s, and how Nortel's top management repeatedly ignored warnings and actual malicious activity uncovered in the company's internal network. In 2004, when Brian Shields first notified Nortel Network's leadership about a major cyber incident, it's not that he was outright turned aside. They didn't laugh him out of the room like cartoon villains. Rather, according to him and others involved, the people in charge just didn't give it much thought. They were distracted with other matters they believed were more important. For example, they were right in the middle of firing their CEO, Frank Dunn, for some shady accounting practices. They did so just four days after Brian and his team discovered the breach, so soon that Dunn himself didn't even hear that he was hacked. But even those who weren't fired didn't hear much about it. Nortel board members later told Bloomberg that they couldn't recall the news ever having come up in any of their weekly meetings. They were simply too busy with onboarding the new CEO. The man they brought in was Bill Owens, a decorated former admiral with the U.S. Navy and former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As CEO, he didn't do anything about the breach, either because he didn't prioritize it, or, if one were to make an educated guess, because nobody around him was talking to him about it. Instead, according to Bloomberg, quote, Nortel, a global technological juggernaut, would respond to one of the longest-running Chinese hacks of the decade with a password update and a series of overtures to Huawei. End quote. Ah, Huawei. You thought we forgot about them. As dedicated listeners of this show will know, being anywhere near Huawei, on their radar to any degree, is a bad idea for Western technology companies. In 2003, a Cisco exec realized Huawei not only copied Cisco's router technology bit for bit, but even plagiarized Cisco's instructional manuals. The two companies' documentation contained the same typos. Something similar happened to Nortel. One case, at least, uh, a piece of uh, network equipment, I believe it was a, a WIC card, was returned uh, to a uh, return maintenance authorization uh, depot or facility in Texas. 
That's Bill Hagstead, a retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps and a frequent visiting scholar to the PLA, China's People's Liberation Army. The incident Hagstag is referring to here was verified by a number of Nortel employees, including Shields and a forensic investigator brought in to examine what happened. As the story goes, a Chinese company delivered a unique piece of routing equipment, a fiber card used in Nortel's data switches, back to Nortel. They wanted a refund. The technicians, when they received it, they found that it had been essentially uh, disassembled as if somebody were reverse engineering it. The Chinese didn't even take the time to put it back together when they returned it. And this really kind of tipped the hat uh, that something uh, malicious or relevant was happening regarding the partnership with China. From the National Post, quote, Tony Anastasio, assistant to Nortel's vice president of security, and Brian Shields confirmed the incident, though they say they recall it was a front company that had bought the equipment and passed it on to Huawei. Meanwhile, the company started noticing knockoff versions of some of its products in Asian markets, he says. Nortel considered suing, but dropped the matter after the Huawei office across the road in Texas closed down. End quote. Huawei denies ever having stolen Nortel IP. But the allegations against them are numerous. One industry vet told the Globe and Mail that by 2004, quote, it was clear to many that Huawei was copying Nortel's telecom hardware and even its instruction manuals. End quote. Take another example, reported in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, On a summer evening in 2004, as the Supercom Tech Conference in Chicago wound down, a middle-aged Chinese visitor began wending his way through the nearly abandoned booths, popping open million-dollar networking equipment to photograph the circuit boards inside, according to people who were there. A security guard stopped him and confiscated memory sticks with the photos, a notebook with diagrams and data belonging to AT&T Corporation, and a list of six companies, including Fujitsu Network Communications Incorporated and Nortel Networks Corporation. The man identified himself to conference staff as Zhu Yibin, an engineer. The word on his lanyard read Weihua. An accidental scramble, he said, of his employer's name, Huawei Technologies Corporation. End quote. Suffice it to say, if Huawei was behind the Nortel hack from 2000 to 2009, it wouldn't be surprising, and it wouldn't be the only way they were spying on Nortel during those very same years. The circumstantial evidence tying them to the hack can look pretty strong. All you have to do is look at the kinds of information they were targeting. For example, among the information included in those 2004 data transfers to Shanghai Faction were, quote, strategy documents titled Roadmap Values and Challenges to Nortel and Value Chain Dynamics and Industry Structure. 
stolen R&D included documents with titles such as photonic crystals and large-scale integration and switching and tuning highly integrated optical circuits and speed data over universal mobile telecommunications service, end quote. If a burglar sneaks into your apartment and steals only a certain kind of item, your prized comic book collection maybe, or your underwear, you can deduce something about who they are. Likewise, none of the information Shanghai Faction stole would be of much use to anyone other than a fellow telecoms company. Ryan Shields has cited particular files as further evidence. For example, one of the documents from LiveLink was about, quote, high-speed data over UMTS quad. UMTS, basically, is 3G. Four years after the theft, Huawei won its first big North American contract, bidding out Nortel in the process. They won on a proposal to install a kind of mobile data network called UMTS. Even though Huawei's IP theft was an open secret in the telecoms industry, and even though there were signs that they were actively spying on their big brother, Nortel still wanted to play nice. Quote, CEO Bill Owens met repeatedly with Ren Zhengfei about a possible merger. He stepped aside in November 2005 for Mike Zafirovsky, who in his previous job as Chief Operating Officer at Motorola Incorporated, had nearly closed a secret deal to buy Huawei two years earlier. Under Zafirovsky, Nortel and Huawei discussed a joint venture in routers and switches, a sale of its Ethernet division, and even a potential rescue during its final weeks. End quote. Even during these presumably friendly meetings, the Chinese fisted on the gullible Canadians. From Global News, quote, there were visits by Nortel executives going to China to be wined and dined, and those executives were told in no uncertain terms by their security, quote, you are being recruited and they will compromise your computers and cell phones, end quote. The Nortel execs didn't take the warnings seriously, and on some level, can you blame them? This is spy novel stuff. Quote, There was detailed actionable intelligence naming people and methods and targets. There were people that were caught and devices found and backdoors found and traced back to the Chinese. And this was escalated up to Nortel leaders, and they didn't really want to see it, end quote. They didn't want to see it because they thought they were doing good business. In reality, the proposed deals Nortel hoped would unite the two companies were probably just a front. According to Bloomberg, they, quote, may not have mattered much to the Chinese company because as Nortel was collapsing, Huawei quietly hired about 20 Nortel scientists who've been developing the groundwork for 5G wireless technology. End quote. 
So to summarize, while Huawei was feigning business with Nortel on the outside, behind the scenes they were reportedly bugging Nortel executives, recruiting Nortel employees, stealing Nortel IP, and possibly also hacking them. The last part is still unclear to this day, but frankly, does it even matter at that point? If you're a defender fighting cyber attackers, you must be successful every time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. In unrestricted warfare, there's a special term for Huawei's tactics. It's called combination warfare. According to Chao Liang and Wang Shangshui, modern wars can't be won by a single means. A country with only the strongest army or the strongest bombs or only the best cyber capabilities will lose to an opponent who can use multiple methods of war in combination. Cyber plus weapons plus soldiers plus as many other factors as you can think of. The same can be said in most cases of wars throughout history. From unrestricted warfare, quote, King Wu of the Zhu dynasty 3,000 years ago and Alexander the Great over 2,000 years ago definitely would not have known what a cocktail was, and yet they were both masters of mixing quote-unquote cocktails on the battlefield. This is because, like mixing a cocktail, they were adept at ingeniously combining two or more battlefield factors together, throwing them into battle, and gaining victories. One plus one is the most elementary and also the most ancient combination method. Long spears and round shields can prepare a soldier for both attack and defense, and give a basis for advancing and retreating. Two people comprise a unit, wherein soldiers with long weapons are used for defense and those with short weapons are used for holding positions. A pair of soldiers coordinate with each other and then form the smallest tactical unit." End quote. As much as it refers to spears and shields, combination warfare is also about combining conventional with unrestricted warfare tactics like economic sanctions, spreading business interests, and using the media to create popular narratives. Like how American government and media worked together during the war in Iraq, or how Russia uses fake news and cyber criminals to influence international politics in their favor. Or, in this case, how a company like Huawei might deploy all different kinds of means to gain visibility and a competitive advantage over their larger opponents. Another entity well-versed in combination warfare is the Chinese Communist Party itself. They're arguably better at it than anyone else. They even have a giant wing of government dedicated to the task. It's called the United Front. The United Front is China's best sneakiest tool for exerting influence throughout the world. 
according to a 2018 report from the United States China Economic and Security Review Commission, or USCESRC for short, kind of, quote, United Front work serves to promote Beijing's preferred global narrative, pressure individuals living in free and open societies to self-censor and avoid discussing issues unfavorable to the CCP, and harass or undermine groups critical of Beijing's policies." End quote. There is no exact comparison in the West, but you can think of the UF as a bit like the CIA if the CIA employed ordinary American companies and expats to carry out the business. The leaders of the organization are high-ranking CCP politicians, but the real work happens on the ground, in branches located in Chinese communities throughout the world. For instance, in Nortel Network's home city of Ottawa, or Montreal, or London, or you name it, there is an arm of the United Front working on what would be best described as influence operations. According to the US-China Commission's report, quote, The CCP's United Front activities incorporate co-opting elites, information management, persuasion, as well as accessing strategic information and resources. It has also frequently been a means of facilitating espionage." End quote. If this still sounds vague to you, we can clarify by examining a recent example of their work. Do you remember, back when COVID first hit, how nobody could get their hands on a face mask? It turns out you have the United Front to thank for that. According to the Associated Press, on January 14th or 15th, President Xi Jinping distributed a mass notice that Chinese officials begin preparing for a pandemic. Almost immediately, the United Front kicked into gear. From Global News, quote, Through clandestine United Front networks, ran out of Chinese consulates in cities from Vancouver to Toronto to New York to Melbourne to Tokyo, the Communist Party urged millions of overseas Chinese to bulk buy N95 masks in order to ship back batches of scarce supplies for the motherland. End quote. In Ontario, 200 Chinese Canadians belonging to the Fengqing Chamber of Commerce started driving around to every medical facility they could find, buying up supplies and sending them back to Fujian. Hainan Airlines in Toronto solicited 56 tons of personal protective equipment from foreign government departments, charities, social organizations and Chinese Canadians. In Montreal, the Chinese Consulate General contacted Canadian government officials, businesses, even student groups to aid in the shopping spree. In Vancouver, a real estate developer started a WeChat group to raise funds and organize mass orders. As a result of the United Front's United Front, between January 24th and February 29th, 2020, China bought up about 2 billion face masks. By the time everyone realized what had happened, it was too late. 
According to a former Mexican ambassador to Beijing, quote, in March, the masks sold to China in January and February were being sold back at 20 to 30 times the price, end quote. That, friends, is combination warfare. Against an apparatus as powerful and well-oiled as the United Front, few individuals, companies or governments could stand a chance. Yet in the 2000s, that may have been the situation Nortel was in. Having studied East Asia for years on behalf of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, Michael Katsuya had a keen sense of smell for the United Front. He told Canada's Global News, quote, I am confident you can see relationships where the United Front Work Department will appear in the Nortel case, end quote. Another Canadian intelligence expert, kept anonymous for fears of his safety, explained some of the ways China deployed its influence machine in this case, quote, the expert said China's attack on Nortel had many facets, from systematic hacking and planting of electronic bugs and spies inside Nortel facilities, to usage of Chinese PhD students hired by Nortel to steal research, and attempts to compromise Nortel managers by using spies from the Chinese Communist Party and People's Liberation Army. End quote. Indeed, we're talking about actual spies, Chinese state actors embedded among Nortel's ranks, stealing research and committing other manipulative acts. What kinds of manipulative acts, you ask? Well, consider this. Did you find it at all curious that Nortel's executive management continuously, year after year, without fail, ignored warnings about their breach? that every time Michael Katsuya or Brian Shields brought it up, it fizzled out. We assumed that it was just managerial incompetence, but Katsuya himself has a different theory. Quote, To this day, I believe there might have been one or more agents of influence controlled by the Chinese in Nortel, which succeeded in neutralizing our warning. End quote. In case you didn't catch it, that was a member of Canada's premier intelligence service suggesting that Chinese state spies embedded in the Nortel's ranks were the reason his and Brian Shields' pleas about the breach never saw the light of day. How's that for unrestricted warfare? The Nortel story may have involved an email hack, a backdoor, all the stuff you're used to, but underneath, it was far more sophisticated than that. It was United Front statecraft, combination warfare, cyber war and espionage and economic manipulation, and so on and so on between the government, at least one corporation, and individuals of all kinds. At one point, quote, Canadian intelligence made the stunning discovery that the Chinese Communist Party was using Chinese organized crime gangsters in attacks on Nortel. End quote. 
a lot of groups and individuals with varied interests all got to eat. According to the unnamed expert, quote, the best way to describe it is between a nation-state, industry and organized crime, there is cooperation to the point of collaboration and collusion. Spying on Nortel became a requirement that satisfied everyone in that community. End quote. China may be the most populous country in the world, but for their entire modern history, they've always been behind someone else in line. For a while, it was Japan, more recently, the United States. Huawei knows that feeling all too well. In its first two decades, the company started by Ren Zhengfei was nothing compared to established Western megacorporations like Nortel. But unrestricted warfare teaches us that little brothers can defeat big brothers if they just apply a little ingenuity. China never had the resources or the talent to compete with the West in technological supremacy. Huawei didn't have nearly enough to compete with Nortel. But they effectively took advantage when North America's foremost provider of internet wires was busy with executive infighting, bad accounting, stock losses, and all the other issues that crop up when a company gets too big for its own good. So this was really the undermining of Nortel before the Chinese came on the scene. Bill Hagstad again. The Chinese simply took advantage of a, a market evaporation that Nortel's executives essentially created for themselves, focusing more on the quarter-by-quarter quarter results, whereas the Chinese look at it in a very long-range plan. Nortel was going to fail whether or not the Chinese had a role. The company was beset by failures in management and finances ever since the dot-com bubble. But like hyenas encircling the injured gazelle, the Chinese ensured their fate and reaped the rewards of their death. The tale of Nortel and Huawei is really a duality uh, in the failure of uh, corporate leadership uh, within a Canadian enterprise and the Chinese actually taking advantage of that weakness. Uh, you can imagine that they read Sun Tzu probably and study it more than we in the West do. I won't say that I, my, I tip my hat off to Huawei doing this because I, I give them no quarter uh, on social media and they know that and they don't like me. Um, the fact is, is that they were successful in infiltrating uh, and perhaps accelerating the demise of Nortel through this uh, three-pronged strategy that they took advantage of successfully. Admittedly, when I hear the story about Nortel helping build a censored internet and then getting hacked by a company that was largely, you know, um, boosted by this whole effort, it gives me a little bit of schadenfreude. And in, at least in the way that I framed this story in my head, it's sort of Nortel makes their bed and then lays in it. Um, am I justified to feel this way or is there something I'm getting wrong here? No, you, you're you actually uh, reading it five by five, as we say in the military communications world. Um, you're reading that accurately. Uh, certainly there are uh, the nationalists in us and perhaps those that are uh, taking offense to that. Uh, but indeed, it is correct. Uh, Nortel became its own worst enemy through uh, corporate infighting and then allowing essentially the Chinese to take advantage 
perhaps bordering on illegal activity, although it's never necessarily been proven um, through hacking, uh, through intellectual property theft, through the compromise of credentials of executives who had the, uh, the wherewithal and the nuances of, of Nortel's strategy, uh, they took advantage of it. So it really, they, the, if there's egg to be flown or worn by anyone, it is really those executives from Nortel and, and certainly the, the over-aggressive uh, initiatives of the Chinese government vis-a-vis their hacking cadre to take advantage of that. These days, the biggest telecom company operating in Ottawa has their research lab just a 10-minute drive from Kerling campus. All you've got to do coming from Kerling is take a left, another left, a right, and you're there. 303 Terry Fox Drive, Huawei Ottawa Research and Development Center. Huawei Ottawa has been home to truly cutting-edge wireless telecommunications research, not least because they have some very talented people working there. Some of those people arrived at 303 Terry Fox after years working just down the road. During the demise of Nortel, many of the very credentialed, experienced uh, scientists, engineers of Nortel were hired away by Huawei to work on what they ultimately have rolled out as uh, the precursor to 5G. At Huawei's HQ in Shenzhen, a wall of fame for the company's brightest stars includes quite a few Canadians. One former Nortel employee who visited the site told the National Post, quote, There are now Huawei employees associated with great technological accomplishments, and I recognized so many of them. At one level, you're proud to be a Canadian, and at the same time, you're upset to be a Canadian, end quote. So one could say that uh, from the ashes of a Canadian company came the, the, uh, the bird of prey of, uh, of China's uh, Huawei. Huawei is now the biggest telecom in the world. The Nortel networks of our day, you might say. Nortel itself is long gone. If you drive into Kerling campus today, you'll be stopped early, even before you can go inside, by a checkpoint guarded by armed military. Back in 2010, to wind down their bankruptcy yard sale, Nortel auctioned off their giant Ottawa headquarters. The deal went to Canada's Department of National Defense, their equivalent of the Pentagon, for $208 million. Soon, they began revamping the beautiful but frankly declining infrastructure. From the Ottawa Citizen, quote, For instance, the project has had to shell out $7.5 million more than expected to bring the Phase 1 buildings up to code to withstand seismic activity. It has also budgeted an extra $31 million to replace defective windows. End quote. Must have been a lot of crappy windows. The entire renovation effort cost the DND around $700 million, everything necessary to get the facility to military standards. And it included a full sweep to make sure Nortel didn't leave anything behind. That sweep ended up yielding some interesting findings. In an interview with the Citizen, a vice admiral from DND, in vague terms, quote, 
legacy bits and pieces, whether they were intended to be there or not. End quote. He was referring to something they found in the buildings. He went on to say, quote, The whole facility was swept when we went through in preparation for our moving in. Anything that was there was legacy to what I would characterize as industrial activity, and we are completely satisfied now that this is a site we are able to move into and it meets all of our security requirements. I am assured anything that was there is no longer there. It was all legacy, old-school stuff associated with the previous occupant." End quote. Did you notice anything weird in that statement? The Admiral references something which sounds kind of bad. Other D&D personnel later clarified what the statements were in reference to. In their sweep, they'd found multiple listening devices, hidden microphones that were no longer active because the previous tenants had moved out. It's funny, in a way. The espionage campaign that went on for a whole decade lasted even longer than Nortel itself. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Over on Twitter, following our double episode on the RSA hack story, we asked you, do you think that cybersecurity companies like RSA are better protected from cyber attacks than other companies? The consensus, 70% of the votes on the poll, seems to be that no, they are not. Quote with P tweeted, quote, I know I'm being cynical, but after the recent hack, I doubt if anyone is truly secure. End quote. Jack Ryder, who is a comedian, by the way, wrote that nothing is truly secure. Jack, if you're listening to this and you want to send me a short clip of your act to air on a future episode, I'll be happy to. And LJ from Webster, Massachusetts added, I think they want to think they are, but we have seen evidence to the contrary publicly. That's not even discussing any events that they have not disclosed. End quote. The only comment from the other side of the conversation was from Lee, who's from South Carolina, quote, larger budgets hopefully mean more layers of defense. End quote. And I must say that I agree with Lee. If I could vote on the poll, I'd probably vote yes. I think that cybersecurity companies are definitely not immune to cyber attacks, but I would bet that they are harder to penetrate than quote-unquote ordinary organizations, if only for the fact that employees of cybersecurity companies are probably more aware of the dangers of cybersecurity than most other people. And this awareness can make it harder for attackers to use social engineering techniques against them. But I'm on the minority view here, it seems. As always, our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. You can find us on Twitter at, at maliciouslife and at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. My email is ran at ranlevy.com. 
Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer. Ben-Or Habari does the sound design. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music.